hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hi, this is Cheryl Broderson in studio, as usual, with Jasmine Allnut. And what are we here for again? Well, Cheryl, we're here because we're talking about women worth knowing. That's right. Yes. And so uh, we have another woman worth knowing that we want to bring to you today, kind of continuing along in line with all of these women in medicine, you know, doctors, nurses, stuff like that. And uh, stuff. I mean, people like that. (laughs) And um, this particular woman, I just have to give a shout out to one of our um, listeners, our loyal listeners, Karen Chaddock. She's the one who uh, suggested this gal. She's like, hey, how about this lady? And I thought about, and I had never heard of her. And I looked it up. I was like, wow, we definitely need to talk about her. Yeah, she's definitely worth knowing. Yes. And her name is Edith Cavell. So I'm not sure if she's a familiar name or not, but she will be by the time we're done. So Edith was born December 4th, 1865, to Frederick and Louisa Cavell, um, and her father was an Anglican vicar, so this is uh, a gal in England, okay? And he was the vicar of St. Mary's Parish, which is in this little country town called Swardiston in Norfolk. And he was a very conscientious, a very principled man. And he was so principled that he used his own uh, inheritance money that he got when his uh, father died. It was a thousand pounds, which was a lot of money back then. I mean, this is the 1800s, right? And he used that money to build uh, the church a parsonage. He didn't even use it on himself. I mean, he did. It was a house that they would, his family would use, but he wanted it to be an investment for the right. church. It would belong to the church. Yeah. So very, you know, again, everything he did, he wanted it to be for others and for the Lord. And so. He really instilled that Christian devotion into his family. He loved his kids. So did, you know, his wife was very nurturing. Um, just a sweet family. And his motto, um, her biographer said his motto would have been save to serve. That was kind of the way he lived his life. And he really embodied that. Like, yeah, we like kind of like, um, you know, how God tells Abraham, I'll bless you and you will be a blessing. And so that's kind of what he felt like their lives were for, to bless and serve others. So. The five Cavell children uh, all grew up learning to to share, learning to care for other people. Um, They got really brought into the ministry with their parents, and they would bring food to, um, you know, some of the poor in their community. Uh, Very hands-on. And uh, Frederick was also the chaplain for the local workhouse, and so the kids grew up very familiar with the hardships uh, that a lot of poor, disadvantaged people in England were facing. Um, If you're familiar at all with workhouses, well, if you're not familiar, think of Oliver Twist. That might be um, you know, for some of you, <laughs> that might spark something, because uh, that was when Dickens wrote about, like, the environment of the workhouses. It was horrible. It was practically slavery, really. It was just a rough, rough environment. So, you know, they were exposed. They're exposed to, wow, the needs of the world and the hardships that people faced. And so um, Edith and her siblings, they were homeschooled uh, when they were young. Again, they had a really happy childhood, but also a childhood that they were aware of the needs of others. Um, so Edith was confirmed into the Anglican Church in 1884. She became a student teacher at a girls' school in Peterborough, which was not too far from home. And she was a great student, um, especially uh, with her French. That's going to open doors for her later, the fact that she was really, really good at French. That was something that everybody kept remarking on. So I don't know. She must have been like total native speaker-ish <laughs> or seemed like it. So after school, she goes back home to her village and starts helping with the vicarage in the community. 
And she found out they didn't have a Sunday school room for the kids and no money for one. And so she kind of just took the bull by the horns and she wrote to the bishop uh, of Norwich. And and he said, OK, well, you know, if, if the people in your parish, if you guys can come up with some of the money, then, you know, we'll go ahead and meet that, match it. We'll match that amount and, and, you know, make sure you're able to get that Sunday school room built. And so I, her biographer said that the bishop probably thought, well, that's the end of that. But Edith was like, okay, he, you know, she took him up on it. And so she did uh, this interesting thing. She started painting watercolor greeting cards. And that was kind of unusual. Greeting cards were kind of new. I know these are things we never think about, like when these things started. I know they used but, to have like these little like business cards that everyone yes. would have that they would give each other. And those were yeah. kind of a greeting card. Yeah, exactly. Actually, it was one of, that's the guy who invented um, greeting cards was he wanted to kind of take it to another level and make it a little more special and more interesting. So yeah, it was a businessman who was trying to just promote himself a little bit. And but, his name is Mr. Hallmark. No, probably, yeah. <laughs> I know. Oh, I like that fake news. No, I'm just kidding. Yes. But, no, but that's that's a fun Mr. American greeting. Mr. Hallmark. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so her whole family got involved. They're like, "Wow, what a great idea!" So she's, you know, right, making these greeting cards, and then they printed them all. They got them all packaged up, and so everybody just really got on board with this, and they raised 300 pounds, which is actually a lot of money back then. Really, and greeting to build cards, a Sunday like, school, which is crazy. Yes, it was. Sunday and school. so the bishop was surprised, but he's like, "Okay, I gave my word. I'll help you." <laughs> So uh, just an example, I think, of her her ingenuity, her perseverance to really get something done if she felt like she could help those that needed it. And so um, when she was 21, she became a governess for the Vickers children in the town of Steeple Bumpstead. I love these English names. Steeple Bumpstead. I've never even heard of that. Um, and um, it was said that she could be kind of strict, but the kids also said she was uh, great fun, and she was always very fair with them, and she always led by example. And that's something we see throughout her life. She was um, somebody who really put her words into action. She did, she backed it up. She never just told somebody one thing and did another. Um, in 1887, she went with her family to Austria and Germany, and they visited um, a free hospital for the poor, and it really made an impression on her. And I think this is probably where the start of her interest in medicine came from. She had never really thought about it before, but she saw, oh, this is a way I could help people. And again, that was kind of just always ingrained in her. So she kept um, serving as a governess for several families. And um, in between all of this, apparently she was um, disappointed in love, which is mm. sad. So she had a dear childhood friend, I know this sounds weird, um, but back then this happened. It, it was her second cousin. And so I think that's actually kind of far removed. If it's your second or third cousin, you're not quite like— it's I not, don't know. Not Brian's, like kissing cousins yeah, quite. Brian's great-great-grandpa was English, and he married his cousin. Yeah, that was a thing. So it was very—especially among the gentry. Mm, um, yeah, interesting. And okay. they were both uh, aristocratic. It was Lord Cecil Haig mar married his cousin Cecilia mm. Haig. Oh, interesting. I mean, they even have like names. yeah. Hmm. Cecil married Cecilia. I mean, seriously. I mean, I guess that's convenient. You yes. know, you don't have to change your name. <laughs> so Monikers on like, the towels stay the same. Hey, hey very, yeah, very handy. <laughs> so um, anyways, it was her second cousin. His name was Eddie. And I don't, we don't know exactly what the situation was. Um, he had, I guess, a nervous condition. That's what oh. he wrote. And what, for whatever reason, he felt he shouldn't get married because of his condition. And again, this was before they completely understood a lot of this stuff medically. And so uh, for whatever reason, he didn't want to get married. But um, her biographer said everybody kind of felt like if Edith or if he would have proposed to Edith, she would have accepted. And that, you know, might have happened. So tragedy, tragedy. But um, they did stay friends the rest of their lives. And but, so, But in some ways, because we know that this 
has a really good future Mm -hmm. and God had something else for Edith, that he would have become her ministry and she wouldn't have been able to enter into what the Lord had for her. Exactly. So God knows those things. Yeah. He's sovereign over those things. That's Mm -hmm. a great point. So um, she ends up as a governess again, this time for a wealthy Belgian family. And again, this is all kind of leading up to what she's going to do eventually. And she loved being there. Um, she did this for, I believe, five years. And uh, yet she always kind of saw the governess position as something temporary, even though she did this for quite a while. Um, in fact, she wrote a letter to Eddie and said, someday, somehow, I'm going to do something useful. I don't know what it'll be. I only know it will be something for people. They are, most of them, so helpless, so hurt, and so unhappy. And so, I mean, again, the Lord is giving her this, this heart of compassion uh, for others um, to see, you know— just the real needs um, of people, not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally, she could see there were needs and that she really wanted to do something about it. So um, again, like I said, after five years in Belgium, she goes back home. Uh, Her dad had fallen ill, and so she went to kind of help take care of him. And it was while she was taking care of him that she decided, I want to be a nurse. Uh, And so she didn't have any experience, you know, no point of reference. But was that now because is, of Austria that she was, decided to be a nurse? That had kind of planted a seed and then helping her dad and, um, you know, just kind of, not well, she was kind of nursing him while he was mm-hmm. ill and she realized, I want to really go into now, this. Did she have any knowledge of Florence Nightingale? At the, well, she was post-Florence Nightingale, so yes. Yes, that's what definitely. I was wondering, yes. Yeah, and, and the neat thing is because of Florence, who we already talked about in a previous episode, um, by this time in England, um, you know, nursing had finally become a, you know, profession that was res- is respected. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. And so um, at this point, hospitals would were happy to like take anyone on that wanted to go into nursing and really train them properly and all of that. So she was able to get uh, training and certification from any hospital she chose to go to. So that's pretty cool. Like by this time, I mean, things were more of a well-oiled machine thanks to Florence. And so Edith started at Fountain Fever Hospital in Tooting in December of 1895. And then the next year, she went to the London Hospital Training School, and, uh, you know, she did very well there. And this was kind of an interesting thing because um, we start seeing her walk with the Lord manifest itself in her nursing because um, I guess prayer was kind of a— it was kind of incorporated into the work schedule. A lot of these facilities, you know, they had a Christian roots, and so they kind of encouraged the nurses, well, pray over the patients. But it was kind of a routine for most of them. They didn't really take it super seriously. But some of her fellow nurses later would write about how Edith took this so seriously. And she was always being found at, at a patient's bedside praying over them. And it, it wasn't just like, oh, do your duty. It was, no, this is an actual ministry that uh, something that really can matter and affect the lives of my patients. So. Um, In 1903, she became assistant matron at Shoreditch Infirmary, and that was connected to a workhouse. And this was something that she really sought out. She was always looking for positions in in poor areas, people that were really hard up and struggling, uh, and not the nice, wealthy environments, but looking for those who really had need and helping them. In fact, she would um, take time off duty when she wasn't even on the clock and go visit patients that had already been discharged to make sure they were okay. I mean, she just went above and beyond. And we see that a lot, I think, in her life, um, that she just had such an active, practical way of, you know, expressing her relationship with the Lord. So in 1907, um, she was asked to become the matron of Belgium's first nurses training school. So this is where her French. Yes, the French, exactly. And the fact that she'd already lived in Belgium for five years. So, you know, 
just another reminder that the Lord uses all these things in our lives for later. I know we see that constantly in these stories. Like my mom always says, what happens now is for later. And here we see it with her. So um, she gets this invitation and her biographer said this, this post was perfect for Edith. She had lived in Brussels. She spoke fluent French, like Joe said. And she had worked in a variety of different hospitals and gained a wide range of experience. Her nursing skill combined with her teaching ability, hard work, and organizing zeal were the ideal gifts to bring to this new demanding role. So she just was well-suited for this. The Lord knew this was where she needed to be. So um, she could be, you know, she was very strict about her English training, but it's neat because even when people talked about her being strict and very disciplined and principled, she was a nurse, you know, nurses are very orderly and meticulous, right? But she was always remembered mostly for her kindness. That's what everybody always talked about with her. That was the impression she left. In fact, she was really patient with the Belgian nurses because she knew you guys don't have all the background we have in England because of Florence Nightingale. Nursing was still not super respected yet in Belgium. And so um, she was really patient and, you know, brought them along, you know, gradually so that these women could get trained properly. And again, she led by example. She never did or never told them to do anything that she wasn't willing to do herself. Taking the night shifts and stuff like that, she was always willing to do the, you know, do the dirty work. And so um, I just, I don't know, I find that really admirable in anyone who's a leader who's willing to do that. Especially in nursing. Yes. I mean, yeah. it's, it's one thing if you're doing it like, you know kitchen cleanup, but in nursing, <laughs> because in nursing, you're dealing with bodily fluids, you're dealing yes. with disease, you're dealing with discharges. I mean, it's not, it's not the least bit pleasant. And, right. and then the smells. Oh gosh, I the know. smells. <laughs> so when she's willing to do this, I mean, mm. that is, that's an anointing. Yeah, it really is actually. And that's a really good point too, because she had actually put herself uh, in harm's way. There was a typhoid epidemic and she just went right in there I mean, that really is an anointing and a gifting to be willing to step into those dangerous places. That's a good point. So um, one of the gals who worked under her later said, everything about Edith Cavell, the neatness of her attire, her attitudes, her poise, the words she used, all enhanced and conveyed what were perhaps her greatest characteristics, her efficiency and thoroughness, serenity, but above all, her great kindliness. Again, mm. that was just, uh, which is really cool because you can be all those other things, efficient and thorough and be a good nurse, but the kindness, you know, that comes from obviously the Lord in her life uh, really spoke to people. So um, she worked hard, not just to train the nurses, but also, like I was, like I said before, to, to train doctors and others in the facility to respect the nursing profession and to really start taking those stereotypes about how, you know, horrible nurses were to remove those things. So she was kind of doing what Florence Nightingale did in England. She was doing for the country of Belgium, and she really wanted to establish nursing as a legitimate profession there. And it worked. Um, the work began to expand. It began to give her a name throughout the country. And she was, as you can probably imagine, uh, very committed to her work. Um, so committed that she never married. Again, that was partly because of the whole thing with Eddie, I think. That probably was, you know, her one true love. Um, but she did actually adopt a couple young women. Um, one of them was, I mean, when I say adopt, I put that in quotes because uh, they were older. Uh, one of them, her name was Grace, and she was in her 20s. And she was basically like addicted to morphine. She was a chain smoker, which back then would have been a little bit unusual for a young lady. Super <laughs> scandalous. Yes, exactly. And she was very devious. Um, you know, if you're addicted to drugs, sometimes you can start, you know, you steal money and stuff Absolutely. like that. Absolutely. Uh, she was prone to depression. So she had a lot of issues and a lot of people really questioned Edith doing this. Like, you know, she's just going to take advantage of you. Why would you do that? Um, but she just 
loved on this girl and was always pointing her to Jesus. And it's interesting because if you read about Edith's life, um, she's not like the most prolific and, and vocal in her faith, like in her writing. She doesn't, you know, not a whole, not super expressive, but if you read her letters to Grace, it's interesting. That's where you see uh, her really sharing the love of the Lord because she really wanted this girl to walk with Jesus. And it's really sweet because Grace eventually called Edith her mom and, and they really had a, a, a really beautiful connection there. And so the Lord really used that in Edith's, Edith's life and in Grace's life. Um, so her school became kind of, it was called the benchmark for nursing standards in Belgium. And uh, they realized as it was really becoming more successful that they needed to build a new facility. Okay. I didn't realize she had a school. So she yeah, a training she's, school. Sorry. Yes. Training yeah, school there. In addition okay. to that. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you said that. Um, and so they decided we really need to, you know, invest in this and make it a bigger, more official thing. So they put the, um, they started to construct a school in 1914, but something else happened in 1914. Dun dun dun! World War One. <laughs> that was my Very one. Good. I like that. If you guys like could World see War Cheryl tea. here, she's trying to. Yeah, <laughs> she's trying to put symbols up here. That's right. World War One began, and so um, Edith was actually in England when uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was uh, assassinated. It was in June of uh, June of twenty. Oh, sorry, of nineteen fourteen. Um, but then by August, she's still in home, in home in England, and it becomes pretty clear after a little while that, oh my gosh, this is actually setting off a huge chain reaction throughout Europe. And it became obvious that continental Europe was soon going to be just really enveloped in war. And at that point, Edith didn't even hesitate. She could have stayed in England and been safe, but she knew, nope, I'm needed there. I've got to be on the, on the front lines. And so she just went straight back to Belgium uh, to minister, really to serve and to help uh, the soldiers. And so um, Germany joins the war on the side of Austria-Hungary, and they planned, the Germans planned, they wanted to attack France. Um, and so what they decided was, we're going to just use Belgium as kind of a shortcut to France. For those of you who are trying to picture European geography, pull up a map really quick. <laughs> and so they were using uh, Belgium. They just thought, oh, we'll just kind of cut through Belgium. Very arrogant. Like, oh, we'll just cut through this little country. They don't matter. We really want to get over to France. Um, and they were not, they were you know, pretty much taking for granted that the Belgians wouldn't mind. Um, but the Belgians were like, oh, wait a minute. No, you didn't. You didn't just walk into our country. And so they were very patriotic and they started to resist the Germans really fiercely. And um, they were hoping to kind of stall and give their British allies time to jump in and help with reinforcements. And so because they resisted, the Germans ended up like just destroying all these Belgian towns. They're killing civilians. It just got so ugly and it escalated really quickly. Um, by a miracle, the Germans only occupied um, Brussels, uh, where Edith was. They didn't actually destroy it. They were destroying a lot of other areas, but the you know capital city they decided to just occupy. And so Edith and her nurses were able to um, help you know treat the wounded on both sides. You know they were helping everyone at this point. Well, um, by September the following month, um, the Belgian resistance had kind of started to form, like the Belgian underground. And they were beginning to rescue Allied soldiers, British and Belgian soldiers, and taking them to safety in Holland to try to get them back out on the front lines and stuff like that. And so before long, Edith starts to become part of the rescue network. And she helped a couple soldiers um, escape. And then word got back to the Belgian prince, uh, Prince de Croix. And so he was in charge of the resistance and he found out that Edith had helped these soldiers. And so he went to her and he's like, hey, would you mind, you know, doing this a little bit more regularly? We could use your help here and you're a nurse. It's a good front. Nobody will suspect you. You're just helping people. 
And so starting in November, she um, began taking in wounded soldiers to be treated and then dispatching them to the Dutch border and stuff. And this was so dangerous at this point. Again, the Germans are becoming more and more hostile because they're so upset with the Belgians for their resistance. Um, but Edith would go to great lengths to help these men. Uh, one British soldier later said, uh, she herself at dawn one morning guided me and Private Lewis, this other guy, through the streets of Brussels. It was she herself, too, who took the photos for certificates of identity for us. She went to the necessary department and fetched back the identity cards. She also gave us food and money to use for, bribery, for bribing and traveling by railway. Uh, and another soldier said she treated me as my own mother would have done and proved herself to be the very best friend I ever had. And so there's all these, you know, stories of soldiers that she ministered to. I mean, she was so proactive. She didn't just give them the least help. She went above and beyond and really was putting herself in danger in order to do this. I mean, this was, and this was like total spy stuff, you know, you see in movies where she'd be sitting at a cafe table with, you know, half of a, like a torn card or something in front of her and somebody else would come and slide the other half of the card, you know. Or, or finding secret escape routes to get around town where you would be able to lose anybody who was trailing you. Um, the, all this kind of stuff, cloak and dagger, was going on. And she's one of the first women, because I've been reading about spies in World War II, Ooh. Who, who did a lot of this um, same kind of espionage. Yeah. But, I mean, she's really on the front lines because mm. you don't hear about— um, you hear about a few during uh, the Civil War, but right, right. a few and far between, and yeah. uh, even in the Revolutionary War. But they're mainly wives that are listening into conversations, yeah. <laughs> but nothing like this where they're actually yeah. active. Yeah, so proactive, mm -hmm. exactly. So this is rare, and um, and plus World War One uh, was considered the most violent war. It was so brutal and, and horrific. It was so brutal, and so it was no place for a woman at all. No, no, exactly, and that's a great point to consider as well as you're thinking about this, like, oh, that's cool. She was helping people. It's like, no, <laughs> this was really not, um, yeah, it wasn't this lighthearted thing that you just kind of do. You had to, she had to really count the cost because mm -hmm. it was going to put her in danger. Well, this is the war that they engaged in biological warfare for the first time. Yes. Yeah. This Mustard is, gas. That's yeah. right. And this is the war where they had the um, Gatling guns or the machine guns. Mm -hmm. The first time they began to use those and I mean, it was a war that was so, so horrific. In mm. fact, C.S. Lewis fought in World War One, mm. and he just talked about he never got over the trauma. Oh, I don't think any of them did. Mm -hmm. I mean, and this is in the, you know, the PTSD we talked about, even like with Florence Nightingale, right, right. in the Crimean War, which was even before this. I mean, so you can imagine World War One would have been even worse. Yeah, that's a great point. So— uh, her resistance work carried on into the next year, 1915, and it was going pretty well. Um, she took in, you know, well, they counted 170 soldiers, but I, they estimate it was in the hundreds of people that she ended up helping. And, and you know, it's just like incredible. two, three at a time, you right. know, trickling in. And each one of those is dangerous. Each one of those yes, is at the sacrifice of her life. One. So that's yeah. like crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and so the, the problem was, unfortunately, as time went on, because it was so successful— you know, this happens sometimes. People start getting careless a little bit mm. and letting their guard down. And so sometimes the soldiers, I was like, oh, how dumb. These British soldiers would go out drinking, and then they'd, they'd come back to the hospital, like, singing, it's a long way to Tipperary, like, these British, like, at the top of their lungs. It's like, okay, can we please not draw attention to the fact that you're English just hanging out here? Um, and then Edith, you know, uh, she was usually pretty good at keeping vague in her letters to home, but once in a while she accidentally would let a few hints slip here and there that something was going on. So she had to really uh, be careful. There were times where she realized, oh my gosh, I'm getting a little too loose. Um, and it's interesting, actually, because her letters aren't very descriptive, obviously. She had to keep it vague. But we do know some of the details 
of the resistance activity from a private diary that she kept in April of that year, of 1915. And it's interesting, um, they actually found it sewn into a cushion in a chair. It was later recovered in the 1940s. They were getting ready to throw the chair out. I don't know how they even discovered there was something in there. That's crazy. Um, but this was the only real evidence that we have of her work that survived that is more detailed because everything else just had to be destroyed all the time to make sure that they stayed, you know, above suspicion and all. So starting in June of 1915, the hospital started to get raided uh, mm. constantly. Um, Edith and the nurses started to be put under surveillance a little bit more. Um, and yet, even though this was happening, and it was becoming more and more dangerous, obviously, Edith told the princess, uh, Princess Decroix, who, again, she and her husband were the leaders of the resistance, and she said, we cannot stop because if a single one of these men is taken and shot, that would be our fault. I mean, mm. she really took this as her ministry, <laughs> in a sense, to these guys. And so... Um, they started sending spies over to the hospital, but I love this. Remember what I said about Edith's kindness? <laughs> and it actually was so infectious that it even hit some of these spies. Um, they got totally won over. They'd go and try to, you know, hang out in the hospital and pretend they were injured and get information. One guy left a note there saying that he was a spy, but he couldn't bring himself to turn him, turn them into the authorities because— they were so loving towards him. Edith oh, wow. was such so kind. He's like, wow. I just can't go through with it. <laughs> wow. So, um, but it started to get more and more difficult. That summer, uh, there was a German Zeppelin that was destroyed. And so the Germans got really upset with the English and, and the Belgians. And so they started making a more concerted effort to gather evidence and arrest the resistance leaders. And so Edith became a major target. She got arrested August 5th on charges of treason. And uh, her interrogations, this is so lame. They conducted the interrogations with Germ in German with French translation, and then they, they would write the statements out in German and have her sign them. And she just assumed, well, there was a translator here, so I'm sure he translated everything properly. Well, the Germans tweaked some of the details in her statements. And so she ended up basically incriminating herself because she was signing stuff that she didn't really understand. It was all so, you know, shady and messed up. So. Mm. Mm. She's placed in solitary confinement mm. until her trial on October 7th. And uh, her nurses, it was so sweet, her nurses put together a petition to the German authorities begging for her to get released, which is sweet. And it showed what a, you know, how greatly loved she was. But that didn't work. Uh, the Princess de Croix tried to take the hit for Edith because she and the prince were the ones who had dragged her into this. They're like, it's our fault. Don't do anything to her. Didn't matter. And so... Um, Edith and several other resistance workers were sentenced to death October oh. 11th to be executed the following morning. Oh. And so Edith spent her last day uh, writing letters. She wrote a letter to Grace, you know, her adopted daughter, urging her to walk with Jesus, um, praying, I know, and and reading. This is interesting. Her favorite devotional was Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis. Yes. And so yes. she just was going through that and, yes. you know, underlining passages on on trials and suffering and how the Lord meets us in those moments. Um, and then uh, Reverend Sterling Gahan, he was called in to kind of do last communion with her, basically take mm. communion with her on her last night. And she told him she was spiritually ready. And she said to him, and this is really interesting, she said, this I would say, standing as I do in view of God and eternity, I realize that patriotism is not enough. I must have no hatred or bitterness toward anyone. And her biographer um, says, you know, she knew that the patriotism her fellow prisoners had used in their defense was not enough to enable her to stand in God's presence. She needed to forgive others just as she wow. had been forgiven. Wow. And I thought, what a powerful testimony, because mm -hmm. they talk about a lot about the other um, people who came through and testified, the other um, 
folks who were executed and they're all like, mm-hmm. vive la Belgique, you know, long live Belgium and all this stuff. And she was just like, you know, that's not what this is about. I need mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. be right before God. Who wow. cares about, you know, yes, I wow. did this for the con- our country and stuff, but, uh, you know, I, I don't want to have anything in the way of my relationship with the Lord at the end of the day. So um, she and Reverend Gahan uh, said together the words of the hymn, Abide With Me. Mm. And I love this quote from her biographer. It kind of captures this, this last moment here. Um, when Reverend Gahan said, we shall always remember you as a heroine and a martyr, she replied, don't think of me like that. Think of me only as a nurse who tried to do her duty. Mm. As he left her cell, she took his hand and said with confidence in her eternal future, we shall meet again. Mm. Her last glimpse of life on earth would be the gloomy mists of an autumn dawn in Belgium. Her expectation was that in the twinkling of an eye, she would be in the presence of Jesus. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life and death, O Lord, abide with me. Mm. That's the line of that hymn. I just think, wow. That was somebody else's that we studied before, favorite hymn. I can't remember who. Oh, I love that. That's a trivia question. So somebody has to write us in. Let us know who that was and we'll give you a prize. Who did we say that was? (laughs) Yes. So she was uh, executed by firing squad, 7 a.m., October 12th, 1915. Yeah. Mm. And England, just as a final note here, England was enraged at the news of her death. Uh, The newspapers were full of eulogies, calls for vengeance on the Germans. In fact, there was like this war cry, who will avenge Nurse Cavell? That became Mm. kind of a recruiting slogan. And all the, I mean, the recruiting recruits uh, doubled during this time. Her biographer claims that she was actually a a key, um, this was actually uh, something that triggered uh, America to break out of its neutrality. But I'm like, well, the Lusitania got sunk too. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true or not, but it might've been something for like, you know, just Mm -hmm. public awareness. Um, Edith's mom was inundated with letters, telegrams, condolences from tons of people, soldiers Mm -hmm. she had rescued, Belgian and French governments, the English queen, Alexandria. Um, I mean, so many people were so impacted by her example. Mm. And she was uh, commemorated all over England. There's even a statue of her in London that my mom told me about. I haven't seen it yet. I have to go find it. So just in closing, the Bishop of Durham said, she should never be forgotten for her faith in Jesus, courage in the face of death, love expressed in practical selfless service to friend and foe alike, and her peace flowing from her confidence that because of Jesus— Death is not the end, right? In life and death, O Lord, abide with me. And I love that that was her her testimony and that she left such a legacy because of her practical love and service. And you know what's great is I didn't know about Edith Mm. Cavell, and she's really a woman worth knowing. She sure is. And so if you have anyone that you think is a woman worth knowing that we need to know about, anyone, a a family member, a friend, you know, somebody in ministry or on the mission field or somewhere— that you know, please write in to us. Um, our email address is wwk at cccm.com. You can also find links to us uh, at graciouswords.com, at women.cccm.com. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for joining us. And again, there's a lot of women we don't know, but they're worth knowing, so we want to know them. Yes, thank you. Please, <laughs> write in. <laughs> Until next time. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.